Hello and welcome to the Formats Podcast Project. My name is David Simmons, and today it gives me great pleasure to be in conversation with historian Paul Buell. He is the author of some 40 books, primarily about the left in America, and specifically about the arts and the left. Uh, for example, one of his books is Radical Hollywood. And we first uh, met at one of our Brecht Project workshops, and when Brecht was testifying before HUAC, and Paul was an, an after-show speaker. He received his PhD in history from the UW-Madison in 1975, then was a senior lecturer in history at Brown University for many, many years, and is the author, or co-author, I should say, with Steve Max of Eugene B. Debs' A Graphic Biography. His newest book is about Herbert Marcuse. We'll perhaps have time to talk about that a little bit. But first, Paul, why graphic biographies? Well, it's a good question, of course. Uh, for uh, scholars who have worked on history or any other field and were went to graduate school in the 1960s or 70s, there was a deep desire to do social history, to deep dive into social history and to find things about class conflict, cultural aspects of working class life and, and minority life in America, and just generally build up a notion and understanding of what made it possible for change to come from the bottom up. Uh, there was also a strong tendency to learn about the wicked doings of the upper classes, but there seemed to be people adequate to that. So my own interest in that of many of our friends uh, was to delve that lower section, and we were greatly influenced by E.P. Thompson, the famed British historian, and many, including me, most especially me perhaps, were deeply influenced by C.L.R. James, uh, author of The Black Jacobins. Like Herbert Marcuse reemerged around 1970 as the 70-year-old guy who embraced revolutionary youth around the world and, and tried to give us a, a lot of their knowledge. By the 1990s, it was clear that the genre of the graphic novel had taken shape and was even respected. And it took the shape of a comic by Art Spiegelman called Mouse in the U.S. about his father's life in Europe before and during and after the Holocaust. Uh, it had a Museum of Modern Art exhibit around it and sold millions of copies. And following that, after the turn of the, the new century, a number of other graphic novels, either nonfiction or barely fiction, like Alison Bechdel's Fun Home, essentially about her, her gay suicidal father, her growing up within the family, and a number of others along the same lines, not that many, but a number of others along the same lines that attracted interest prompted me on the proposal of a friend to take action towards the anniversary of the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, in 2005. And we made me 20 artists, uh, edited by myself and a member of a, an arts collective called World War III Illustrated in New York, produced this book, uh, Wobblies, and that sort of set me on a course. Now, I could say something different, which is, those of us who taught in colleges uh, toward the end of the 20th century learned to our pain that students read fewer and fewer pages. Even very good students read fewer and fewer pages. And that there was a greater leaning toward the visual and the oral. Uh, in fact, there was an oral historian, which is not quite what I meant by oral. But at any rate, that there was a possibility of reaching young people in the 21st century with this altered form of our own skills. Now, I'm not an artist, so my skill, uh, if we can call it a skill or a talent, has been to organize the artists, organize the project, get money for artists, see it through the production, and try very hard to find that audience that will discover in these books a way to see the past that they would not have seen before. And since an estimated, rough estimate, 80% of all graphic novel readers are under the age of 30, this is an intent to reach across the generational divide, as I am 74 now, and reach a younger generation that seems far more radical than any, at least since my own in the 1960s. 
Um, now, you were founder of Radical America. There were comics in Radical America. Right? Uh, indeed. Uh, Radical America was launched here in Madison in 1967 as a magazine intended initially to educate the members of Students for a Democratic Society. Then, 1967, growing rapidly, unbeknownst to us, destined to crash two years later. But the purpose of Radical America, which started with the Radical Education Project of SPS, was to educate the young. And then I discovered fairly quickly that a lot of older generation uh, radicals, maybe a thousand or more, were also very, very interested, partly because it seemed to reflect uh, a world, a radical world of the 1920s or even before. It was a strictly non-sectarian, not part of any party or anything, and up for culture, visuals, uh, an idea of uh, radical fun you might say. One issue of Radical America Comics appeared uh, in 1969, both intensely about uh, peacenik activities or attitudes and somewhat in less intensely about smoking dope. Uh, so it, it brought together the inclinations of that generation. And I learned much, much later with FOIA documents made the FBI far more interested in this otherwise cerebral magazine than they would ever have been. Uh, there was also Cuba for Beginners, which is my first introduction to sort of radical comics. Indeed, uh, by Rios, the very great Mexican artist. Now, Rios is different from the American radical comics that really date to the underground culture of the late 1960s in, into the 1970s in this way that his work is prose with illustrations, although sometimes the illustrations are almost the entire page. Wonderfully done, a fabulous work, a number of uh, half a dozen widely received books by him with many translations around the world. But the artists I've worked with tend far more in the direction of the classic comic arc, that is comic panels that uh, novelize, you might say, uh, his historical uh, series of events, elaborate the life of a personality, something like that. So these are somewhat different methods. They're not so far apart, but they're, they're different ways of expressing the same ideas. Uh, we will get to Gene Debs, I promise. But uh, just one more question. Um, the history department at UW-Madison in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was unique. Can you say a few words about that? I'm very happy to talk about the history department in Madison those days because it's definitely part of my story. In 1990, I brought out an anthology of recollections called History in the New Left. Madison, 1950 to 1970. There were a number of recollections in that outside of the history department or rather people who had passed through the history department as well as those teaching there. But uh, really, uh, the history department was a center of anti-war sentiment, uh, even in the depths of the 1950s. It was more in debt to the legacy of Charles Beard than any other history department in the country. And it contained a sort of Midwestern, granular, left-wing resentment toward the big government, which sounds strange to say today. Uh, because of the connection between the big government programs and the military-industrial state. And so we learn from our American history professors about the American empire in ways that we wouldn't have learned in many other ways, and that it wasn't benign in all the ways that liberals were declaring in those days that the great American foreign policy was benign. There were radical European professors and in other areas. They were going in different directions although they're also very internationalist-minded and often very left-wing-minded. But that's a rather different story. So, Gene Debs, can you give us the origin story of where he came from, the time he grew up? Well, let me plunge into this uh, in my own fashion, which is to say that growing up in the middle of Illinois, not very far from where you grew up, I was only one state away from Terre Haute, Indiana. But if I was force-fed the life and work of Abe Lincoln from a very early age, I'm not sorry I was force-fed it, the life and story of Eugene Debs didn't enter my childhood, although his friend and favorite poet, James Whitcomb Riley, the great sentimental poet of the turn of the 20th century, was in my childhood. My father recited that sentimental poetry to me. So maybe I was not so far away from his terrible drinking buddy, Eugene Debs, as I thought I would. Well, 
becoming a, a young socialist at age 18, I naturally would hear about Eugene Debs' war sooner than later. And as I began working on the history of socialism when I was an undergraduate writing an honors thesis, Debs loomed larger and larger for the reason that he loomed so large in U.S. history itself. That is to say, I was interested in the 19th century, and I began to look at the ways in which the socialist movement started over many times in the 19th century, from the immediate post-Civil War era on, even putting aside the utopian socialists of an earlier period. Uh, and every time it started up and seemed to have been successful, it would fall apart again. First international place in control of uh, New Yorkers to get it away from the European anarchists fell apart almost immediately in the 1870s. Socialists were elected to a lot of local offices in several states following the railroad uprising in 1877 and lost everything in the following election thanks either to ballot cheating or to the Democratic Party appearing to be more left-wing, two things that are common in subsequent U.S. history. And then it rose again in the middle 1880s around the eight-hour movement and the famed strike and incident in Chicago, and then it fell apart. And then it rose again in the depressed 1890s, and then it split in the various sectarian ways and fell apart again. Above all, the effort to organize people born in the U.S. to get beyond the ethnic base largely German until the 1890s, then Jewish and several other smaller nationalities, uh, had been unsuccessful, had been frustrating, and it just didn't make any headway. And it was no rival for populism and other radical or dissident movements among the white and uh, non-white people who were angry at the government and taking direct action and forming co-ops and forming political movements and so forth. These didn't connect with socialism until Eugene Debs. And it's fascinating to know and to explain through a comic that Debs really had only contempt for anarchists uh, through the 1880s and that he thought nothing of the Haymarket martyrs, uh, except it was terrible what the state did to them. But as anarchists, he was not fond of them. Uh, he would never have declared himself a socialist until the middle 1890s although a new beginning of a new four-volume series on all of his published writings reveals that he read Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, the famed best-selling utopian novel, and wrote about it very carefully and very intelligently in the Locomotive Fireman's Journal of 1889. So he was following the developments with great interest, but the idea of socialism in its European class struggle version did not appeal to Eugene Debs. Uh, they, as a leader of the locomotive firemen, the very uh, upwardly mobile, you might say, craft union, people who saw America as a place of upward mobility and themselves as part of a great success story. Well, all this comes crashing in the Pullman strike of 1894, uh, and Debs had already realized that the craft workers' positions were being broken down, stolen from them by the monopoly power of the railroad barons. Uh, and he began to look beyond the ranks of the so-called aristocrats of labor and see that only by uniting all the workers in one particular trade, that is railroads, crucial to the economy, could they organize themselves successfully. When the Pullman strike, a strike of half a million railroad workers, mostly west of the Mississippi, in support of the workers in Pullman, Illinois, south of Chicago, a, a company town with terrible conditions, producing the most expensive railroad cars in the world for aristocrats in Europe and for the moneyed aristocrats of America. Uh, when that strike was beaten by the first use of the National Guard troops to break a strike, and uh, with the assistance of Samuel Gompers, the head of the American Federation of Labor, becoming more and more anti-socialist himself, Debs began to see that only if labor had its own political force could it best power of capital. He went through a couple of years of, of hoping to form a utopian colony in the West, inspired perhaps by Edward Bellamy. But then he began to discuss and negotiate with the scattered uh, socialists of several ethnicities, German and East European, uh, Jewish in particular, mainly operated in their own languages. And uh, they gathered former populists who were tending towards socialism and others. 
and although the different factions couldn't actually join by 1900, they nevertheless were able to put him up as the candidate of the Socialist Party in 1900. And from then on, his fate was sealed as a, a touring lecturer, exhausting himself as a touring lecturer, as a, a wonderful, incredible symbol of socialist come into American popular life, and actually is a very fine writer, a bit of a journalist, as he had been in early days, but mainly somebody who wrote widely on political themes and very, very well, and someone who, by virtue of his personal touch, was hugely beloved by crowds, like no radical in the 20th century except Martin Luther King Jr., and had that same touch, you might say, of lifting people up those who listened to him and believed in him felt themselves improved, something that rarely happens for left-wingers in the U.S. Uh, could you say something about the importance of the railroad industry? Because it's sort of a small part of the economy today, but in the 1890s, it was huge. In the days when the automobile workers were the most radical, large group of factory workers in the U.S., which would be from the 1930s, through the early 1970s. Those who were involved in automobile worker struggles, both with the union and wildcat struggles against the union leadership, would say, yes, railroad, uh, automobile production is central to America now in the way that the locomotive was central to America in the 19th century. The country could not be united geographically, so huge in the 1870s, or before, without the railroad lines providing uh, transportation of everything, the economy could not grow without the railroad lines providing the transportation. And uh, many people would say, I don't think it's mistaken, that the way the North defeated the South was not only through vast production advance during the Civil War, but also because the Civil War was the first war anywhere in the world in which large amounts of people and troops were transferred by train. It added to the number of casualties by an unimaginable degree. It revolutionized warfare in terrifying ways. But the North had the railroads as well as uh, the factories. And the South ultimately couldn't succeed. And I have to add, my great-great-grandfather from northern Illinois, Ezra Fuller, was one of the people in the Sherman's March to the Sea that tore up the railroad lines and wrapped the, the heated railroad lines around trees, and they were known as Sherman neckties. By making railway impossible in the South, it, it was even more effective than destroying the plantations and urging the slaves to run away. It meant that the South could no longer conduct its economy. So the, the railroad was crucial in, in every sense, and everyone toward the end of the 19th century saw that as the struggle on the railroads went, so the class struggle would go. So let's move on to talk about Debs and the Socialist Party and his presidential campaigns. I think the most important thing I learned in the scholarship in the last 25 years as I've followed the scholarship all the way since before I finished my dissertation was that the heroic vote of 6% of the actual voting numbers in 1912, which seemed, uh, that is to say, nearly a million votes, which seemed so phenomenal, the high point of socialism and so on, was viewed by the functionaries, uh, the inner circle of the Socialist Party itself, as a terrible disappointment. Why would it be so disappointing for socialists to get only a million votes and incidentally elect hundreds and hundreds of local officials and a couple of congressmen? Well, the answer is that the Socialist Party had grown so fast from 1900 to 1912, the expectation was that the Socialist Party would emerge as the third party and the alternative, according to everyone, to the two capitalist parties. What happened instead is the Progressive Party formed around protests against corruption in politics and led by the extreme hawk, the eager warrior, but also popular ex-president Theodore Roosevelt, was the third party. And Debs' party, the Socialist Party, was well out of that 
and people said that it would never achieve that status of challenging both of them. There was another reason, and as Woodrow Wilson, the Democratic candidate, promised all kinds of reforms, including improvements for labor, so that it would not appear to the casual observer that the Socialist Party was the only alternative to the two capitalist parties. Okay, uh, that's the downside that, that I learned. Uh, the upside is that nevertheless, there were, because so many immigrants could not vote, there were millions of socialists in the U.S. There were literally hundreds of local and regional newspapers that appeared on a, a weekly and in many cases a, a daily basis, often supported by the Central Federation of Labor in various towns, in more than a dozen languages. And the educations that was conducted within Socialist Party branches and more in public was really dramatic. And the strikes that broke out were frequently crushed, but they were also sometimes incredibly dramatic and impressive. It showed that the lower classes had the ability to rise to the occasion and win these very difficult strikes against the, some of the most powerful corporations in the world. So if you were in the Socialist Party, or you were around the Socialist Party, but very optimistic about, let's say, the industrial workers of the world, or if you were just the kind of person who saw the, the nation leaning toward the left, you would think that socialism was really going someplace and that Eugene Debs was the irreplaceable leader. Now, I should also say that United States socialism might have been viewed, was viewed, as very backward compared to the influence of socialist parties in Germany, France, uh, to a lesser degree, Italy, Hungary, and a, a number of other places. So that America nevertheless remained important because of the growing power of the U.S. and because the U.S. was the industrial heartland of the Industrial Revolution. So that it was always believed in Europe before World War I that American socialism was behind, but it was going to catch up in a hurry because, after all, socialism would come with the creation of a larger number of proletarians, et cetera, et cetera. So we come to the beginning of the First World War, and in Europe, the hope was that the uh, Social Democratic parties would not support their governments in the push to war. And that was different here. That was exactly so. Of course, a section of the Russian, Russian social democracy, Bolsheviks, had announced their perfect indifference towards uh, the mobilization of, of Russian workers to kill the workers of other nations. And syndicalists on the Clyde in Scotland, likewise, and there are other patches around Europe and the world where there was resistance. But as you say, the great socialist parties of Northern and Central Europe essentially announced for the war none more devastatingly than the German social democracy itself, the largest political party in Germany. And with that moment, the optimism about the future of socialism, the sense that socialism was the certain future, something shared by many millions of people around the world, but disappeared, collapsed, and uh, the Russian Revolution appeared almost as a consolation. But without the optimism that the workers in the advanced industrialized society were necessarily going to become the leading force or even a force in the coming of socialism, that earlier idea of education, of socialism through education, uh, and this gradual step-by-step -step stages of society and of socialist parties leading towards socialism, that, that sense of inevitability really uh, broke and, and uh, never was reborn. In the U.S., there certainly were socialists, including some prominent intellectuals, who uh, went over to the pro-war cause because Woodrow Wilson's points seemed to promise a more democratic world. But an overwhelming majority of the Socialist Party followed Debs's inclinations against war as having destroyed uh, many places, but certainly by that time in America, the greatest hopes for social progress and bringing instead this monstrousness, even apart from the actual deaths, in redirecting society towards a terribly destructive force. And that couldn't be tolerated, according to the liberal the democracy of, of Woodrow Wilson, and therefore it had to be stopped. So that an opportunity was sought 
to put Debs on trial because he was the great leader of socialism. And you could say he jumped into the hangman's noose or the prison garb because other prominent socialists had already been jailed and members, leaders and members of the IWW were already being jailed in, in significant numbers. So that when he gave this speech in Cleveland in 1917, he knew exactly what he was doing. And when he went to trial in 1918 and made some of his most famous declarations, he knew perfectly well that, that the defense would not be successful and that he would be sent to prison. And when he ran for president behind prison walls in 1920 and got nearly a million votes, or perhaps many more that were counted out, uh, it was as the premier class war prisoner in all of American radical history, perhaps in all of American history, the man who can run for, uh, for president from behind jail bars and get a million votes. Um, let's take a step back because you mentioned the IWW, and that's a thread in the story that we haven't touched on yet. The IWW story is complex, partly because it was started with enormous hopes in 1905, and by the time of the recession of 1907 08, it almost collapsed entirely and ceased to exist. That's how far the numbers have fallen down. The sense from the 1890s on was that unions of skilled workers did not give a fig for the plight of the so-called non-skilled, since many of the skills of skilled workers were simply father passing on the craft job to a son or another relative, particularly in the construction industry and the building trades. Uh, but leave that aside. The masses of, of newer immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe, unlike the Germans, had no skills that were applicable to the best paid positions in, uh, in industry. Instead, they were at the bottom, like textile workers of New England, uh, disproportionately women, and they would be paid the absolute worst wages and suffer the absolute worst conditions I said textile workers in New England, I might as well have said lumber workers or extractive workers, mineral workers out in the West, among many others. The IWW had a grand vision of a post-industrial state. You might as well call these sections of the industry Soviets. That's because that's what Wobblings thought the Russian Revolution was all about. They, they, which would reconstruct the government on a non-political basis. There would be no politicians. People in the industry, men and women in the industry, would make the crucial decisions for society. That was the grand vision of the, of the IWW, and it was greatly appealing for people who wanted a different kind of society but always mistrusted politicians for all the best reasons. That's some of the worst. Uh, well, uh, the IWW thought to organize industrial workers and agricultural workers migratory workers everywhere, but by and large, they were pushed away from the industrial centers. And when they had a great successes in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912, it wasn't a lasting success. They sort of didn't want, even want contracts, but they hoped there would be this momentum that would organize more and more workers, and that didn't happen. So in a way, they retreated to distant origins in, in many different senses. There were some successes in the East, but more and more uh, among itinerant workers toward the West uh, or extractive workers toward the West. And the ethos that emerged was unique in American history in the sense that they created a culture of giving great street corner speeches next to the Salva Salvation Army speeches and devised songs and other kinds of really sort of popular culture things that appealed to people, uh, men and women without jobs, hardly educated, but could understand what the Wobblies are trying to tell them about their own possible strength. It used to be said in the teens and parts of the West that you could only jump on a, a freight car if you had a red card in your pocket. And that didn't mean they were uneducated. Some people said they had the Communist Manifesto in one pocket or the poems of Robert Burns in one pocket and the IWW card in another. It was a circumstance where highly educated people could, or self-educated people could join uh, those regarded as bums and share a common culture uh, within limits and organize, if they couldn't organize unions, free speech fights, 
in various cities facing the most ferocious police forces and rally an almost cult-like following of people believe that the lower class could rise up and take power it was a, a vastly empowering culture even more than it was an organized movement and for all the reasons that seemed obvious as it continued to gain strength among agricultural workers from 1912 on the government would need to be crushed so it was crushed often with great violence uh, from 1917 to 1919 there were lynchings by american legionnaires uh, there were sentences of 20 years handed out to IWW leaders. So official and, and unofficial violence, the smashing of presses, the destruction of offices and so forth, truly ruthless repression, as bad as the oppression of the Socialist Party was, the repression of the IWW was something that had, had up to then been unknown in U.S. history and as a subject of a new history of, of that repression by a, a scholar, a legal scholar in Madison. So it's a history we're still understanding in its fine points, but the reality of it is all too clear. So back to 1917, mm -hmm. Debs is in prison, and there's revolution in Russia, and some radicals in the U.S. look to that as a model, and we end up with two communist parties in the United States briefly. Yeah, I should say that, that Debs doesn't go to prison until 1919. But it becomes clear from 1917 on that certain sections of the immigrant community, uh, Russian immigrants, who were partly but not entirely Jewish, but many Russian-speaking uh, immigrants in, in, a, in an ethnic movement that had been badly organized and had published newspapers in Russian that don't seem to have been read all that, all that widely in the U.S. But those hundreds of thousands of immigrants attached themselves to events in Russia as immigrants from Italy, both for and against the war, attached themselves to events in Italy. And Irish immigrants normally tending away from socialism became much more radical during the war. They hoped the British would be defeated and so on and so forth. Each nationality felt strongly about events happening in their homeland. And for Jews, the reality of the horrors of Jews being assaulted throughout Eastern Europe had a particular effect. And the desire to see the end of the Russian regime and the czars had been a long-standing sentiment in, in Jewish American life. So comes the Russian Revolution. Uh, the fact that the Second International, the European social democracies, had been so thoroughly shown to be defeated and worse than defeated, betraying, gave a sense that in this vacuum, the one great revolution that appeared to be succeeding, the Bolshevik Revolution, had a, an enormous impact. I already said it came as a consolation for people who no longer believed socialism was inevitable anywhere. And that's quite true. Lenin's declaration of self-determination of nations was enormously exciting to immigrants from the Ukraine, what became Yugoslavia, the various nationalities, Hungarians and others, Finland, but others from this diaspora near Russia who may or may not have had deep Bolshevik feelings, but had deep nationalistic feelings about their own home societies and, and saw in the Russian Revolution their own chances to create new societies of, of, of some kind, but at least they would be free of the national oppressions that it, they'd suffered under various countries, Russians, Germans, and others over the centuries, and uh, be able to, uh, especially if they were uh, Jews, free themselves from this terrible reign of, of anti-Semitism. So the Russian Revolution was exciting to a lot of people, and as I said, to many people in the IWW, those Russian Soviets looked like a big, successful version of the IWW. Now, the trouble was that, taken perversely, the lessons of Lenin's vanguard party tended towards my vanguard party is better than yours. And there were two competing entities, one almost entirely immigrant and very largely led by the Russians, and the other substantially U.S.-born, not that much, but maybe 30% U.S.-born and with favoritism from other non-Russian ethnic groups. 
And each of these two entities believed that they would be the true Communist Party and fought each other so furiously, people began to think that the Bureau of Investigation, then new, but would become the FBI, was deeply infiltrating some of these proto-communist groups. And we later found out that's, that's very likely true. At any rate, they had a Donnybrook that went on from roughly 1917 until 1923, when the common turn intervened, really was the only way these things were ever going to be settled. But what we often don't see beneath the surface, and what I only discovered by looking at ethnic literature, secondary studies, and in some cases I could actually read the ethnic literature myself, was that the social slash working class centers that set up by Slovenians, Croatians, Ukrainians, uh, Hungarians, and others in working class neighborhoods in the 1910s before the Russian Revolution as what really began as sickness and death benefit societies as the Germans had created them in American cities in the 19th century, but also cultural centers. These community centers which were uh, the basis for the left-wing newspapers in these languages, various languages, which were already popular in the mid-1910s. They often continued almost uninterruptedly through the rise of the Russian Revolution and the terrible repression that fell upon the entire left. Why? Because they were in languages that the FBI couldn't read? That's a possibility but more likely because they were rooted in blue-collar industrial life. And unlike the communist factions in much of the U.S., they weren't so susceptible to being uh, uprooted and, and crushed and needing to reorganize themselves. So they were, in many ways, the proletarian backbone of the new communist movement that emerged around 1922-1923. And they and their children, sons and daughters, were in many ways the heart of the CIO and much of heavy industry, steel to electricity, less so but significantly automobiles, and we could name a half a dozen other places where unions are formed because they were a community base for unionization. And these are communities that had never been since their arrival in the U.S. afraid of the word socialism. And the divisions between socialists and communists were less than the socialists and communists thought they were. There was a general kind of, we may not even belong to either any of these organizations, but our sympathy is towards some kind of social transformation, definitely unionization. And FDR and the New Deal went a long way to encouraging them to believe that this thing was going to happen, even if not like Bolshevism in Russia. So back to Debs yeah. and and his declining health and the subsequent history of the Socialist Party. Yeah. Well, uh, all of that was a way of saying that Debs was the biggest hero imaginable to, let us say, Slovenian communities that stretch from Pennsylvania, where it was quite big, to uh, Cleveland, to Chicago, and, and parts of the West. Uh, and the same would be true for their neighbors, the Croats, and the same would be true for Hungarians and uh, a number of other nationalities and perhaps Jews most of all. Debs was just meant everything to them. And it used to be said that after he emerged from jail and the Socialist Party was in decline, that the events they would hold, which were basically banquets, would be middle-aged men and women eating food together and crying because they're, they're, the greatest dream in their lifetime was over, and Bolshevism wasn't really going to be the satisfying substitute. Uh, a natural feeling of middle-aged people that had this heroic moment earlier in their life uh, when expectations were so much higher. So that is the Socialist Party of the successors of Debs and its titular leader, Symbolics in every way, Norma Thomas, had been part of a pacifist, group that emerged as the leadership in lieu of Debs, even at the end of the 1910s. And when so much else of the Socialist Party following slipped away, uh, Norman Thomas's moral leadership was a kind of substitute for 
the existence of a, of a real party organization. People thought in 1932 that he would get several million votes. College students in a number of campuses, especially in the East, but other places too, in the mock ballots leading up to the 1932 elections, Norman Thomas was ahead of Franklin Roosevelt. And tens of thousands of people would say later that they wanted to vote for Norman Thomas, but they were afraid that uh, Herbert Hoover would win. In the Midwest, with a different train of thought, my father, the Congregationalist, who was in his 30s in the 1930s, said he wanted to vote for Norman Thomas, but he was afraid Franklin Roosevelt would win. <laughs> because Catholics aren't, you know, uh, Democrats who are Catholics aren't, aren't good people, you know, whereas Republicans are respectable. So that what that means is that after 1932, uh, it, for my father as well, uh, Debs, Tom, Norman Thomas was Mr. Socialism. You didn't have to believe him. You didn't have to follow him. But somehow he, he persevered with this idea of a better society. Uh, and when he attached himself to isolationists late in the 1930s, warning that when America militarized, it would never demilitarize, he was heard widely by people who were not friendly to socialism, including some pro-Germans. But for that moment, for that last moment in the Keep America Out of War Congress, as it was called, uh, Norman Thomas was a great public figure. That was the last time he would be a great public figure. Uh, he could support the, the Japanese prisoner during World War II as a great moral figure. And, and even after a, a grimy history of supporting the Cold War, come out for opposition, join the opposition to the Vietnam War, and he was very old and very weak. That was Norman Thomas, a face above the crowd, you might say. So uh, we can fast forward and make a brief stop at Michael Harrington. Yep. Yep. Well, the Socialist Party is nothing. I mean, uh, they run a candidate in 1948, uh, and that candidate is Norman Thomas, but he was sorry he did it. And they never again launched a serious candidate for president, and they had very few local members, for that matter, would be in the, the low thousands, mostly elderly people. But there was a, a socialist youth movement in the 1950s, encouraged by civil rights, encouraged to a degree by anti-war sentiments, pacifist activities, and various other things. And Michael Harrington was this young guy from an upper-class St. Louis Catholic background who joined the Catholic Workers communitarian group in New York, but also was known as one of these uh, hangers-on of the beat generation, poets who would never be published and so forth, with a lot of connections, some of them very unsavory, like Daniel P. Moynihan, fellow drinkers at the White Horse. And uh, it was said that he was doubtful that one should vote for Kennedy in 1960. He thought maybe a socialist candidate would emerge. But uh, with the Kennedy administration and uh, liberalism in high seats for the moment and a certain degree of optimism, although matched by insane Cold War behavior on the part of the U.S., like the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Harrington's The Other America about the existence of poverty was heavily promoted in the liberal media, very heavily promoted in the liberal media and became, to his enormous surprise, a bestseller, a very well-written book. He was a great banquet speaker uh, and a very, very good campus speaker. Uh, Union Halls would have been well down the list of, of the people who came to hear him, but in, in those ways, he was very successful, and he leads his very small fraction of the larger socialist milieu, or maybe his fraction is a third of the small socialist milieu at large of maybe 10,000 people, but probably fewer. Uh, after the 1972 election, in which he supports George McGovern, unlike the other socialist factions, into the creation of a new socialist or maybe liberal socialist movement that merges with the New American Movement and forms the Democratic Socialists of America in 1981. And it takes enough of the former members of the 60s activist generation, me included, who join 
for a few years in hopes that this will be a revival of, of a kind of popular American socialism now that the new left from that standpoint was 10 or 15 years over and there was no hope for revival along those lines. And Harrington dies. DSA manages to scrape through the next decade and more. Uh, new leaders come along and uh, nothing much happens. They're keeping a light in the window as much of the rest of the American left is trying to do in small groups, just keep a light in the window. And then comes uh, Occupy, Black Lives Matter, the 16 election, and you might say also the Wisconsin uprising, I certainly would say so, and Bernie Sanders. And something has happened in generational moves to bring Bernie Sanders a thousand miles further than he'd ever been before. And that maybe to turn him more toward the left, or since he was a youthful believer in Eugene V. Debs and even made a documentary film about Eugene V. Debs in the 1980s, uh, in the direction of becoming a sort of voice of American socialism in the spirit of uh, Eugene V. Debs. So if we're coming to my comment now, I would say that my sense was the moment was arriving when the word socialism was now acceptable again in wider American society, substantially thanks to Bernie Sanders articulating it, by no means only for that reason. Let's say also say capitalism became distasteful to a, a, a new generation beset by climate change and unsteady jobs and stresses of all kinds of new, uh, long, unfamiliar types and frankly downward mobility. So the moment had come to create a comic about Eugene Debs, uh, more or less for the same reason as a comic had been created a decade earlier on the IWW, or in the shape of, of socialist personalities, as I've been able to encourage comics about such personalities as Emma Goldman, Che Guevara, Isadora Duncan, the famed inventor of, of modern dance, quite a radical person herself, and, and others, and to try in my way to create a, a recuperate the history of Students for Democratic Society with a, a comic on that subject. And the Beat Generation, which inspired me so as a teenager with a comic on that subject, and maybe the most successful of all these things, a, a Red Rose, the biography of Rosa Luxemburg, and an adaptation of Howard Zinn's People's History. We call it a People's History of the American Empire, the comic. And it's our most successful work. But all this goes in the same direction. And if it leads to Eugene Debs, then it probably makes sense it leads to Eugene Debs. So Bernie Sanders made a good run, but was not the nominee. So we didn't really find out to what extent red baiting still works. Should he be the nominee? Sure. Sure. I'm, uh, it's two reasons. One, deeply personal, that he is in his articulation of Debs and whatever his weakness, weaknesses are, uh, a successor to Debs, who could speak of socialism and encourage people like AOC to come forward and call themselves socialists, which is a very great thing. But uh, for a second reason, as people from Wisconsin know best, when Bernie Sanders was cheated by the uh, Democratic National Committee and the superdelegates from carrying Wisconsin, in fact, for Bernie Sanders, even though he carried it through votes, the defeat of Hillary Clinton in the fall election in Wisconsin was foreshadowed. Endless numbers of pundits say if only she'd come out and given more talks in Wisconsin, she would have carried the state. In reality, she was so thoroughly disliked that when she came to Madison in, I believe it was September, she held a by-invitation-only meeting on campus of two or three hundred people, probably mostly non-students, uh, well, young Democrats, of course. Uh, but if there'd been an open meeting, she would have been hooted out of the room, uh, whereas Bernie Sanders drew a crowd of 10,000 in July of 2015, putting himself on the map and compelling journalists around the country to take him seriously. So if there's another Hillary Clinton-esque candidate, specifically Joe Biden, but we could think of some others, in practical terms, 
they, the Democrats will not carry Wisconsin, and they may very well not elect a Democratic president. Obama managed to get people really excited and hopeful, even in those former industrial villages that lost their industries. Obviously, he had a huge uh, African-American vote in Milwaukee and, and a few other places. There are large communities of black people in Wisconsin. But he gave people a, a, a real sense and feeling that something could change dramatically in America. And, and the notion that everything would be fine if we go back to the way it was before 2016 is a badly mistaken notion in, uh, in, in Democratic strategy, but it's one that's so expectable that all one can do is sort of shudder to think about the consequences. So should there be a Sanders-Trump campaign, the question is, does red-baiting still work? Red-baiting without the Reds. Red-baiting without Russia. Red-baiting when it's hard to view China as uh, other than state capitalists even though the young people are all reading Marx and Lenin, or millions of them are, let's put it that way. Um, this is the way that it is believed by Trump and his key supporters that they can run a campaign. And if Elizabeth Warren gets the nomination, it'll be the same campaign. And it may be the same campaign if some other Democrat who says a thousand times, I don't believe in socialism. It may still be the same because in our lifetimes. Uh, Medicare was described as creeping socialism by Ronald Reagan and thousands of other Republicans and by conservative Democrats too. You don't have to be a socialist to be accused of being a socialist, clearly. This is, you didn't have to be a communist to be accused of being a communist. So I would say it doesn't matter in that vein whether the Democratic candidate declares himself or herself a socialist or open to socialist ideas or not. The Republican campaign is us or socialism, which sounds so familiar to the 1920s when someone, some rising politician, and it, it may have been Herbert Hoover, uh, declared that the 20th century would be a test between communism and Americanism. Not capitalism, but Americanism. And I think this is the way that this is going to be cast. Uh, in the upcoming election, socialism or Americanism. And we all know what Americanism means. Paul Buell, thank you very much. Thank you so much.